0: to the city church podcast we hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message if you would like to find out more about the city please log on to our website www.thecity.sg in the in the fourth century the Roman emperor uh, Constantine uh, made a radical decision uh, in the fourth century you know after a prolonged period and season of Christian Persecution, the Roman Emperor Constantine made the decision to uh, publicly and imperially endorse Christianity, and he did so uh, by making Christianity the official Roman religion He made it the official Roman religion in the fourth Christianity in the fourth century. However, the brand of Christianity that soon followed after paled in comparison to the Christianity that the disciples lived model in the Christianity that Jesus thought. To the Romans, religion was simply the rituals that you do, the gods that you erected a shrine for, who you prayed or who you worshipped to. And for the most part, there was virtually no ethical demand when it comes to religion. No reorientation of life whatsoever. Religion was simply an add-on to life itself. All of a sudden, the nature of Christianity or the Christian faith shifted. To be a Christian was previously uh, an immensely difficult thing. It meant, you know, reorienting your lives. It meant for some leaving their households. It meant for some saying yes to a persecuted life. And for some, even losing their very own life. Christianity used to be an immensely difficult thing, a difficult decision. The cost was heavy. And all of a sudden, Christianity became something you could say you are, you could... Profess in name to be a Christian without embodying any of its nature. And in the 4th century, after the Roman Emperor Constantine's decree, we saw the birth of what we commonly understand today as nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity. And what that is, is in, in a nutshell, is that you could be a Christian by name, but we'd be without its nature. A status symbol rather than submission to the ways of God. Religion, to the Romans, was... Rituals, practices, but with virtually no ethical demand. With virtually no intention to reorient their lives in submission to the Lord. And that was the state of Christianity. Constantine himself, the Roman emperor, waited to his deathbed to get baptized. Because he thought that he would be in less danger of contaminating his soul and by extension missing out on heaven. Because it was a ritual, it was a practice. I make sure I get this right and don't mess it up, you know, because I want to make it happen. If any one of y'all are waiting to your deathbed to get baptized, then let me suggest, you know, take up that opportunity that's coming up at the end of the year. Get baptized ASAP, you know, get that done. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? But interestingly enough, you know, uh, if you study history, uh, church history, uh, rather, right around the time we saw the decline of what was an authentic expression of Christianity. And this brand of Christianity, ritualistic expression, you know, no ethical demand, no reorientation of life whatsoever has become the normal right around that time. A group of Christians observing the permissiveness and passivity that wrapped itself around Christians grew to be dissatisfied with the way things are. With the way things are. But also with their own personal experience of God, the Christian faith. They grew dissatisfied with this form of Christianity that paled in comparison to the kind of Christianity that Jesus preached and talked about. They longed for an authentic faith. And right around that time, these people made the radical decision to sell everything they owned and moved to the deserts to live. This is what they did. They redrew, re-evaluated their faith, prayed and realigned themselves to the things of God. And while they were in the desert, they devoted themselves to scriptures, community, meditation, silence and solitude, charity, basically devoting themselves once again to all the things that the early apostles did in the book of Acts. They moved past the accepted norm of being a Christian by name and made the commitment to actually live Christian. And these people would then be known as the Desert Fathers, or we commonly know them as the founders of the monastic movement. And out from the community came forth writings and teachings and wisdom that have shaped the understanding of God and the church globally. But it has also called the church to not just profess to be Christian, but have their lives reoriented to Jesus, reoriented to the ways of God. Here's the, the, the observation. When the Christian faith in that day had veered off its intended course, God raised up a people to defy what was normal and paved the way for an authentic Christianity. These people withdrew, took a step back, re-evaluated their lives in light of God's scripture, prayed and then realigned themselves. You know, and all through history, we've seen different groups of people go through similar experiences from the, the, the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, to even the Jesus People Movement, different awakenings. People have gone through that spiritual journey, so to speak, of taking a step back, withdrawing and reevaluating re-evalu- their Christian walk, their form of Christian faith in light of God's scriptures, in light of the teachings of God. And it's an experience that I think all of us need to go through. We must have an internal conviction that resolve and resolve that our lives are to be raised to the standards of Scripture and not the standards of Scripture being lowered to what we think is plausible or practical. Our faith is not just a belief system. It's a reorientation of life itself. It's not just sufficient to say, I believe in Jesus, profess to be Christian by name. But to be Christian, at its core fundamental definition, it means that my life is patterned around Christ's pattern. My life is submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. My life ought to be conformed to the way Jesus lived his life. It's a reorientation of life itself. Dallas Willard said this, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. Your Christian faith is not fully lived up until you actually endeavor to live Christian. Not just in profession, not just in belief, but in action. Am I making sense? Here's where I'd like to take us to today. You know, the, the end of year is typically a, a time of reflection, isn't it not? yeah. You know, we do our times of reflection, and then, you know, towards the end of the year, we make some resolutions. Next year, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to lose some weight, you know. I'm going to pick up a sport, this kind of thing, you know. And That's, that's what the end of the year typically looks like, you know, we have... Um, you know, in a few weeks' time, Facebook will give you a, a lovely little report on how uh, committed you are to their little platform and how well you have done, you know, how many people you have liked and all that kind of good stuff, you know. Um, I'm sure Grab will send you a little report of how, uh, you know, supportive you are of their, their company and uh, different things, you know. Uh, how many of you have uh, have an iPhone, yes? Yeah, God's people, yes? Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll move on. Well, how many of you have that little social media, that little usage report? Yeah, it shows you how long you've been on different apps and stuff. You know, it's a great time of reflection and resi- and and, and uh, introspection, really. You know, um, towards the end of the year, you know, I I'm really introspective by my nature, you know. one of the things that I do that I don't know really whether relate to is, you know, I would go home at the end of the day, and i would actually rethink and replay all the conversations I had during the day, and in my head, I'm like, yeah, why I say this, you know, you know, I should have said that. Could have sounded smarter. Ah yeah. Why why I say that? The person offended and you know? And I do this like little introspection thing every day. And I have to really, really uh, you know, tell myself to not do it. But I think you know, a healthy measure of introspection is healthy. You know, I think it's essential to Christian formation. I believe it's essential to being formed inwardly. And this is what I want to do today. I want to take us to a moment a point of introspection where we really, really take our lives and put it in light of God's scripture, of the things of God, of the ways of God, and really, really, you know, take a moment to reevaluate, pray, and then realign, just as the Desert Fathers did, just as like the Saints of Old did, just as many church fathers have done before us. We take a moment today to put our lives, you know, under the microscope, so to speak, under magnifying glass, you know, or whatever have you, and Really, really take a moment to reevaluate, pray, and realign. Alright? Now I came across this quote uh, you know, once. It says this, that movements start when the founder is deeply acquainted with the Lord, but movements end when the followers are only acquainted with the founder. The Bible says this, that Moses knew God, but the children of Israel only knew Moses. The Bible says that Israel knew the acts of God, but Moses knew the ways of God. Moses had a deep relationship with the Lord. He had the most profound experiences on the mountaintop. But the Bible accounts that the children of Israel were simply contented with staying at the base of the mountain and hearing from Moses and not encountering God for themselves. And that is probably one of the saddest accounts in the Bible. An entire nation who had experienced the salvation of God's deliverance of, and the deliverance of the Lord had completely rejected relationship with him. And I believe it's the role of church leaders, of parents, you know, to. Ensure that that, that, that that scenario never happens in our families and in our churches. In my heart for this time of preaching is that you know, it would not be a replacement to your walk with God. The truth is this, that this isn't Christianity. This isn't Christianity. Christianity is your walk with Jesus, a personal relationship with Jesus. The abundant life that God speaks about it's not a service. It's not exuberant worship. It's not great preaching. It's not falling down on the altar. It's not that. The abundant life that God speaks about in the Bible, it's knowing Him. It's having an intimate relationship with Him. Yes, this is part of the Christian journey where we gather together as a community. We pray for different needs. We hear the Word of God together. We experience the presence of God in worship together. But this isn't Christianity. Am making sense? And my goal for for our time together, for the the preaching of God's word and hearing uh, scriptures together is that we will leave here really with a resolve in our hearts to engage with the Lord, to have conversations with Him, to ask questions, to have an actual relationship with God, that this will be supplemental to your relationship with Jesus. The way I see it is that church services and different gatherings and meetings, they are like punctuation marks and punctuation points in, in a sentence. You know, it... You have the exclamation marks and, you know, it it's like energy. But the main meat of the sentence, you know, it's its the words. And that is your personal relationship with Jesus. That a high point of your Christian life should not be in here. It should be in your own walk with the Lord. Am yeah, i making sense? And so this is what I'm going to do. This morning I'm going to be sharing from three really familiar passages of scriptures. Uh, talk about three different things. At the end of each part, I'm going to leave you with a question for you to ponder, process, and dialogue with the Lord. And uh, we'll first take the time later where we can just be still before the Lord, bring these questions before Him, and really, really take a moment to re reevaluate and realign our walk with Jesus. You yeah, I making sense? Yes. My sermon title this morning is "A Year in Review." You know, I've done this a couple years ago in 2016, and I believe you know, it's good to do one of these things. Uh, Every year, if you're able to. Cool? Okay, let's start with the first passage of Scripture. Let's look at Second Samuel 6, verse 11. It's a familiar passage of Scripture. Can you all see? Yes, it's not too thin. Okay, great. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Giddite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, it's told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Next slide. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fat sheep, then David danced before the Lord with all his mind. Familiar passage of scripture, I've seen this before, and uh, the ark of the, of, uh, of, of the Lord we know is synonymous with the very presence of God. Right. You know, and we see really, really distinctly that there's a correlation between the presence of God and sacrifice. Where the presence of God was, there was always sacrifice. The sacrifice was an almost natural response to the presence of God. You know, when God shows up, it has to invoke a response. It has to invoke a response, and that response is sacrifice. Is sacrifice. Here's the thought. In order to see the more of God, sacrifice has to be part of that equation. We look through the Bible, all through Old Testament, we know that whenever a sacrifice was offered before God, his fire always comes down and consumes it. There are no vain sacrifices in the Bible. Fire always falls on sacrifice. Something of a divine exchange happens when sacrifice is placed. When we observe the life of Solomon in the Bible, we see that he made countless of compromises in his reign. These compromises in eventually led to the gradual demise of Israel. Scholars would say that it took Israel some 500 years to recover from all the paganness and idolatry that Solomon brought into Israel. Took it took them 500 years to recover from all that he brought to Israel. And this was a wise, wise king. Brilliant. The most... Uh, 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 prosperous time of of Israel, and then he made a series of bad decisions, compromises, and led to the eventual demise of Israel. Here's the thought. If compromise is the language of regression, then sacrifice is the language of progression. We are no strangers to the term sacrifice. Sacrifice, for most of us, looks like the big gesture, you know, the big, big check, the career change, you know, jump into full-time ministry, the giving up of your life. It looks big and grand. And often we see sacrifice as something exclusive to certain personality types. Sacrifice means the big gesture. Sacrifice means the big acts. But what I love about this passage is that David, you know, in this story, David did not, you know, at one shot, I'm sure he could, at one shot, sacrifice all the oxen and all the fetish sheep. But you read the story, it says that every six paces, they laid something down. They sacrificed. Every six paces, he sacrificed. And it says to me, you know, uh, one of two things. That sacrifice is not meant to be a one-time event. Right. Yeah. It's meant to be cons- continuous and consistent. It says to me that I don't need to do the big grand thing to qualify it as a sacrifice. I can start by small, simple acts. Right. By small, simple acts. And sometimes we put sacrifice on this pedestal that is so unattainable, and we go like, maybe one day I'll get there. When in fact, we can do the small things, small, simple acts of sacrifice, six paces, lay something down, six paces, lay something down. But it says to me another thing as well. You know, My favorite definition of sacrifice is this, that sacrifice is a step beyond convenience. And if sacrifice is a step beyond convenience, then the way this plays out is that if I keep sacrificing the same way over and over again, it would eventually become easy, convenient, and natural. Yeah. And by definition, it wouldn't be sacrificial anymore. That's why sacrifice is not just to be continuous and consistent, it is to be progressive as well. i making sense. Yeah. Let's look at another passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Are you all with me? Yes? Okay. Yeah. Familiar passage. It goes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. You know, I don't know how many of you have looked at this. I'm sure all of you have transformed this passage at some point, yes? All of y'all. But What does it actually mean to be a living sacrifice? Do we actually take the scripture of God, know the words of God, and actually go like, what does it mean to my life? How is this relevant to the way I live life? How do I actually engage with this teaching, with this truth? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? And it's also almost an oxymoron because you know, in that day, no sacrifice would willingly go and present themselves, do they? No. The fatted sheep and the oxen don't go like, okay, now it's my time to have my head chopped off. You know, they, they don't present it themselves as living sacrifices. Most of the time they don't. I don't know. Maybe we have like very enlightened and very obedient sheep. But anyway. Paul is exhorting us to be living sacrifices. And I think there are two ways to view this verse. Number one way is that you yourself are the sacrifice I think that's why the people in the upper room, in the day, uh, that's what the people in the upper room, the day of Acts were, you know, they were living sacrifices before the Lord and the fire of God came, and came upon them. They presented themselves as sacrifice upon the altar. I think the, another way of viewing this passage is that we become living sacrifices when we live a sacrificial lifestyle. A sacrificial lifestyle. Now again, sacrifice may seem big, mysterious, but it could be as simple as making time for things that are most important, taking steps of faith to use our gifts for the sake of others, and more often than not, doing what doesn't come naturally to us. And in this conversation, we typically go, you know, I have done so much in the past already. You know, I was a youth, I did all sorts of youth things, and you know, I paid my dues time after time, and... I've done it already or, you know, when we look at sacrifice, we think, you know, how big a check, you know, should I write, you know, maybe I should just do it now. But I want us to think of sacrifice, a life sacrifice in light of our interaction with other people, in light of an actual conscious lifestyle decision. That making sense? An easier question for us to ask and maybe something can relate to is this. When was the last time you allowed yourself to be inconvenienced for the sake of others? When was the last time you allowed yourself to be inconvenienced for the sake of others? Sacrifice is a step beyond convenience. And a sacrificial lifestyle is a life that is willing to be inconvenienced, willing to go the extra mile for the sake of others. i that making sense? You know, remember the account of uh, Jesus flipping tables uh, in the temple, you know, before... Flip bottles, uh, Jesus flip tables, and uh, he began, you know, to exact his wrath on men who were in the temple courts. And the Bible says that they were uh, doing different things; they were selling livestock, they were money changing. And Jesus was so mad that he actually made a whip and drove them out of the temple grounds. So Jesus was really, really upset, you know. And you know, I, I've often looked at this passage and like, well, maybe Jesus had an off day. You know, usually he's a pretty chill and happy guy, but. Maybe Jesus had an off day. (laughs) But I I think the reason, uh, this is my personal belief, I think the reason why Jesus was so upset with these men was because they came into a temple, not with an offering, but with an agenda to benefit and gain. To benefit and gain. The temple was this. It was the house of God. It was always centered around sacrifice. Like Everything about the temple was built around sacrifice, from the architecture to the way things were laid out, to the very activity that occurred in the temple, it was always about sacrifice. It was always about bringing something before God. But then this man, they came in and they turned it around and it became all about personal gain, benefit. And Jesus came in and drove them out. Now, I think this is really uh, symbolic and it it speaks to the modern church today. This is the modern temple of God. And we are coming in. And my question for us is that do we come in primarily with an agenda to benefit or gain, pure as it may may be? Or is the primary agenda of us coming here together to lay a sacrifice before King Jesus, to be moved out of our convenience, to lay something at the feet of God, to be inconvenienced for the sake of others? Do we come here primarily to benefit or gain? Or are we after laying something down at the feet of Jesus' sacrifice? You know, I I, I think about um, this story which I share often. Uh, for Mozambican men, you know, this was a man who uh, hated the church, who wanted to do nothing with it uh, and constantly um, was persecuting uh, Christians. And one day, you know, he encounters the goodness of God and gets saved. And, uh, you know, his first week as a Christian, uh, they tell him that, hey, you, you need to go to church. And so he goes to church. And this was a man... Uh, who had nothing to his name. He only had the clothes on his back and he went to the, the service. And uh, he sat there and uh, they do what you know, we typically do. They have a time of worship and they pass an offering bucket around. And the bucket passed different people and some dropped in stuff, some wouldn't. And uh, it, it got to him and this man you know, looked at the bucket and he had nothing to offer. He had no money not whatsoever. He only had the clothes on his back, a shirt, a pair of uh, pants. And he looks at the bucket and he begins to pull out every single one of his buttons on the shirt and drops it in the bucket. You know, the the buttons, they, they don't cost much and I don't think they can add it to the building fund. But I think the beauty of it is that once you've experienced the goodness of God, once you have experienced God, sacrifice, giving, is a natural thing. It's a natural thing. The thought is this, that if you're still measuring the magnitude of our offering, if you're still measuring how much is a a good enough amount to give, then we truly have not experienced the magnitude of His worth. When you realize how worthy He is, when you realize how truly good He is, giving, sacrifice is a natural thing. And so my first question for us, after that long spiel, is this, do I live a life of convenience or do I sacrifice? Do I live a life of convenience or do I sacrifice? Are you still with me? Okay, let's look at another passage of Scripture, 2 Chronicles. Uh, you don't have to take the questions down. Or I'll have them all up for you later because I'm nice that way. But let's look at 2 Chronicles 14. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. If you're wondering who Asa is, Asa is, the, I believe, the great-grandson of Solomon. He removed uh, the high places and incense altars and in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. Watch that. And the kingdom was at peace under him. He built up the fortified cities of Judah, since the land was at peace. Next slide. It says this, that no one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. And then he says, let us build up these towns, he said to Judah, put walls around them with towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours, because we have sought the Lord our God. We sought him, and he had given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. Asa was the great-grandson of Solomon. And when Solomon was in rule, as I said earlier, he opened doors all kinds of idol worship because of all the different wives he was bringing in. And Asa, the Bible says, did what was right in the eyes of God. He reformed the land. He brought back the things of God, the ways of God, the statutes of God. And I want to draw your attention to these two lines. The, the, the second line, it says, for the Lord gave him rest. And the last line, it says this, and he, the Lord, has given Asa, the king of Israel, rest on every side. And the word rest is the word shalom, it's the word wholeness, it's the word completeness. But if you look at it in its original text, it literally would translate to, and Asa was without any adversary. He was without any adversary. There was no one against him. He had no conflict. There was no adversary. He had rest and the Lord prospered him. And the city. Now the question is this, Now, why would you, okay, in that moment where you know the Lord goes, I'm going to prosper you, you did what was right, I'm going to give you rest on every side, you have no adversary, no one is going to come against you. And watch what Asa's response to that was. After hearing all of that, after recognizing that the Lord was with him, that he was going to prosper him, that he was going to give him peace, Asa then fortified the cities. He built up walls. He uh, built up towers. He built up gates and bars. The land is still ours. But because we have sought the Lord, He did all these things. He did all these structural things. Why? Because the city was valuable. And you'll always protect what is valuable to you. You will know what is of value to you by the structure you put around it. You will know what is of value to you by the structure you put around it. And structure simply is this. Structure is your values, principles and beliefs translated into a practical commitment, into a practical commitment. And in many ways, we are like the city that holds value. value. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory, the very spirit of God lives within us by which we experience and know Him. And the question asked for us today is this, how valuable is that? Truly, how valuable is that? That relationship with Jesus, having his very spirit within us. How valuable is that? How worth protecting is that? Where do you place it in terms of value? Is this something worth fighting and protecting? Or is it just an afterthought? How valuable is this? If it is of value to you, then you will have structure to protect it. You will have structure to protect it. You no know, Benny Hinn, uh, I love his book. It's one of my favorite books. It's a book called Good Morning Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, you might have mixed feelings of Benny Hinn, but I, I, like, I like Benny Hinn and especially his book. And Benny Hinn in his book uh, writes that he made a commitment really on in his ministry, in his Christian walk, to always respond to the Holy Spirit when he calls. When he feels the Holy Spirit calling him, he would respond. And our story goes that Benny was at a really important dinner with really important people and they were having a nice dinner and it was a really, really expensive steak dinner he really, really wanted to eat the meal. And as he was uh, talking and conversing and eating, he then feels the Holy Spirit come upon him and he feels the Holy Spirit calling. And instantly, without second thought, he stood up and said, gentlemen, I'm so sorry, I have to go. And then he leaves, goes to his hotel room and begins to spend time with Jesus. That is structure. That is structure. It's a practical commitment. Lift up. What structure do you have in your life that communicates value, that protects what you deem as valuable? Making sense? You know, if you're in a marriage or relationship, you do certain things or you put certain things in place because you value the relationship but also because you communicate value. And the thing about structures, the thing about disciplines, might be a better word, is that You know, if it's done rightly, um, we never view it as a requirement. We view it as a natural expression of enjoyment. Because I enjoy you, then I want to do certain things, commit myself to certain structures, disciplines, because I want to protect that which I enjoy. And then this no longer becomes a requirement. It's a joy. Am making sense? We don't do structures or disciplines to merit God's love or appreciation. We do it because we value this relationship and we want to protect it. Disciplines are not done for the sake of the appeasement of God. It is done in response to the value we place on God and our relationship. Discipline then takes a different spin, doesn't it? It is no longer a requirement, but a means, not a means of appeasement, but a joy. If disciplines and structure comes hard to you, by that, you know, it could mean reading your Bible and committing to coming to church and committing community. If these things come hard to you, take a step back and reconsider whether you're truly enjoying God. Here's the simple truth. It intermercy inter-mercy that fuels disciplines, and not discipline that fuels intermercy. mercy I making sense? The next question is this. Do I have structure that communicates my value for God? Do I have structure in my life that communicates my value for God? Are there Practical commitments that I've given myself to that communicates my value for Jesus, that protects this relationship. Is this something that I truly deem valuable? Okay, now the last uh, story I'm going to take you to, and we're going to bring it to a close. It's on in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Another family of passage Scripture in Samuel, the prophet said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels and donkeys. Next slide. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the the Lord's instruction, but Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep? In my ears, what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. At this point, you know, we realized real quickly that Saul did not obey God's instructions. God said to clear out, wipe out everything, but he kept some for himself. He kept some, and with the thought of, maybe I can just offer this as a sacrifice. Now it says this uh, in the next, uh, yeah, right here. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Familiar passage of scripture, we've all heard this verse before, obedience is far greater than sacrifice. Here's the mistake that we often fall into. We are mistaken when we think that extreme acts of sacrifice can, can compensate for small disobediences. I'll say that again. We are mistaken when we think that extreme acts of sacrifice can compensate for small disobediences. There is no substitute to obeying God. And the indictment against Saul was that he presumed that he could sacrifice enough to compensate for his disobedience. Well-meaning as the sacrifice was, he said, I'm going to give it to you, God. Well-meaning as it was, it could not compensate for his disobedience. Matthew 23, 23, in the, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spice, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. There's Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. You've done what you ought to do, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. And often when I read passages like like this, you know, Jesus, you know, spanking the Pharisees, I go, hey, that's not me. You know, whenever I read the Bible stories, like, I'm always David, never Goliath. You know, I'm always Daniel, never Nebuchadnezzar. I'm always the good guy, you know. I don't know how many of you read the Bible that way. It's like, oh, I relate to the story of like the good boy's struggle and the eventual victory. I'm never the bad boy. But you no know, when I read this story you know it, it 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 hits me that this is so relevant in our lives isn't it you know we could be sitting here faithful in Sunday attendance tithing serving diligently doing all the right things we feed the poor we're nice and polite we do all the great acts of sacrifice but we might entertain a little habitual sin in our life and the mistake we fall into is that we think by means of all these Christian activity, all these sacrifices, all these of doing the right things, that this could compensate for that habitual sin. Disobedience is disobedience. And sacrifice will not make up for it. that making sense? I think before the year ends, we have to deal with the little elephant in the world. Are you sinning? Have you willingly violated aspects of God's laws and commands? If you are doing so, you have to stop now. It is not to be delayed or eventually weaned off. No, the consequences are far too great for this to be trifled with. We as a church have never advocated for the fear-based preaching of the gospel. We, we never, you know, in our services go like, hey, you better turn or burn, you know. Or we, we've we've never, you know, taken the, 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 the eternal consequence of hell, you no. Know? Weighty, weighty subject. We never go on like, hey, you know, we better do things this way. And we've never used it as a means to coerce people to coming to Christianity, and we never will. You know, we read in the in the Bible that Jesus never used it as a means to preach the gospel, to uh, call people into his kingdom. He always did so with love and acceptance. But if you read in the Gospels, you realize that Jesus was completely unapologetic of reminding the Pharisees about hell, of the churchgoers, of the people who when the temple of the people were familiar with God's laws, statutes and commands, of the people who knew what the right thing was to do, he was unapologetic about reminding them of an eternal consequence. And I will do the same for us, that don't just think that by sitting here and doing all the right Christian things, that if you entertain a little habitual sin, you entertain sin in life, that you will be without consequence. More sacrifice does not mitigate disobedience making sense you know we know of people who you know uh i'm sure most of you know but i have a friend recently that uh his uh passed on uh, this year and uh he uh will go to church he was a christian but you know i knew him fairly well i knew that he wasn't living a christian life i knew that he was entertaining all sorts of stuff and i think the, the question of the hour is this you no know, is is he really christian you know uh he professed to be Christian by name, but he lived completely unchristian and so what was he? Can he truly be a Christian and I think the even bigger question and this is a theological question is that can a person be once saved always saved that just because he did the salvation thing here he said the right prayer that he is he set it 's like god ready it 's okay that he he can do all sorts of funny things in the middle and it 's fine it'll be without consequence you know and to be honest you know, i think that 's a theological question that I'm not at the liberty to expound in this manner and I still haven't, don't really have a conclusion. But I think a couple of takeaways is this. you know, that One, Christianity was never meant to be a one-time transactional event. It was always to be a lifestyle. Jesus never calls us to a one-time transactional event. He calls us to a life reoriented to His ways, His purposes. Dallas Willard said this, that what is it that we look upon our salvation as a moment that began our religious life instead of the daily life we receive from God? Salvation is not just a moment, it's the daily life we receive from God. And my next thought is this, why chance it? Why trifle with something that bears with it so great an eternal consequence? It's time that we live with eternity as our cornerstone for all logic and reasoning. It's time that we live conscious of eternal reward and eternal consequence. Your decisions in life will always be framed by what you deem as a reward or consequence. You make your life decisions that way. I do this because I perceive I'll get reward from Him or I avoid doing this because I perceive a certain consequence. And there's no greater reward than heaven than experiencing Jesus for all eternity. But there's also no greater consequence than eternal damnation, separation from God. And it's time we weigh the decisions we make in life in light of eternity. Am I making sense? John Chow, you know, uh, I'm sure many of you have seen uh, this story and it's made its way on News Asia and different uh, you know, news mediums. John Chow is a 26-year-old missionary. He was killed um, recently. Uh, uh, he was reaching one of the last unreached people groups, uh, the Santanese people. It was a tribe of about 150 people who live on an island somewhere off the coast of India. And um, some way they got uh, one of his uh, last journal entries. I'd like to read that journal entry to you. You know, On, a, on November 16, before his second attempt and final visit to the people, John penned a letter to his parents asking them not to be angry at the St. or God if he were to die. He advised them to live their life in obedience and that he will see them again when they pass through the veil. He says this, that this is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of the tribe are at hand and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God Worshipping in their own language, as Revelations chapter 7, verse 9, 10 states. He wrote, I love you all, and I pray none of you love anything in this, more, in this world more than Jesus Christ. He said before signing off, Soli Deo Gloria, followed by his name. Eternity It's a cornerstone for all logic and reasoning. To the world, and most news outlets report as such, that that is utter foolishness. Are you crazy? Are you stupid? Why are you going to reach that people group? They're going to kill you. Are you insane? That seems illogical, irrational. It doesn't make sense. But you take that story and you put it in light of eternity. All of a sudden, it makes sense. In life, you will say yes to some things as a Christian, as a Christ follower that will invite persecution that will invite naysayers, that will invite opinions that tell you that this is irrational, that it doesn't make sense. And if you view that decision apart from eternity, stupid, illogical, impractical, but you take your decisions in life, you set it in the context of eternity, everlasting reward in Jesus, all of a sudden, everything makes sense. And obedience becomes a joy, not a requirement. I'm yeah, making sense. My last question for you is this. Do I obey God promptly in every area of my life? Do I obey God promptly in every area of my life?